0: Welcome to the Talks on Law, California MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Hi, and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen, and today we'll be exploring deep into the field of privacy and technology, specifically regarding the rights and protections of students in schools. Our guest today is a leading expert in the field and a law professor at Fordham Law School in New York. Welcome, Professor Reidenberg. Thank you, Joel. Today we're looking at the privacy landscape in schools. What rights or expectations of privacy do students have today?
1: Well, there are many dimensions to the kinds of privacy that students might have or more likely than not not have in school, Um, ranging from do they have privacy in their lockers? Uh, Generally the answer is no. Um, To privacy associated with uh, their school records, generally the answer to that is yes. Today, one of the areas that is really burgeoning uh, is the privacy of data collected about students in school when they use educational technologies. Um, Schools are increasingly uh, deploying technologies for learning, um, for email, just a host of services that generate a lot of data about the students. And the privacy of that information right now uh, is very problematic in the United States. So this is
0: not just what students have in their locker rooms, this is the information they may have in their phones, their browser histories on their computers, or perhaps even their
1: locations. Absolutely, and whether it's done in school or out of school. So there are examples, for instance, that schools will provide iPads or laptops to students that they can take home. So now they're at home doing schoolwork, the question becomes what access does the school have to information about those Children when they're at home, is there a capability? There have been a couple of very high-profile cases where webcams were activated by the school at the home of a child uh, who was using a school-provided uh, device, um, and whether there, what privacy interests does that implicate? Um, there are instances where students are bringing their own devices to school. Uh, and will the teachers, for example, be able to look at the text messages that are uh, on a student's uh, cell phone that the student has brought to school that belongs to the student? Uh, so all of these areas right now uh, are promoting or prompting many controversies uh, and new case law.
0: So as as the technologies uh, that we are so used to in our everyday lives make their way into the classroom or as those technologies develop, uh, the privacy
1: constraints around those will have to to shift or adapt? Absolutely. Right now, there are essentially three statutes that address um, student privacy as it would relate to to a school building. Um, The most important is the Family Educational Right to Privacy Act. It's known as FERPA. Um, It's also known as the Buckley Amendment. It's been amended a little bit since it was enacted, um, but essentially what that statute does is provide confidentiality for the educational records that are maintained by schools as an institutional record. So you think of it as a confidentiality of your transcript, um, confidentiality of uh, the records that were kept in a school file cabinet once upon a time. Uh, it's very hard to apply that statute today to the kinds of data that's collected electronically about uh, children and students from their everyday activities in school. Because there's just so much more data? There's more data, the statute only applies to educational records and a lot of the data generated in school won't qualify as an educational record the way the statute defines it. The statute only applies to educational institutions receiving federal funds. So the vendors that are providing products uh, to the schools, the vendors are not covered by the statute. The school district has obligations that it has to meet to give data to the vendors but the statute doesn't apply to them. These are
0: consultants that are brought in to, uh, to help with the learning process?
1: No, these are more private companies that are selling different sorts of products. So it may be a company selling um, educational content. Here's a math, the, the, a math learning program and the program consists of um, self-assessment quizzes. Uh, so here would be an example. An eighth grader sitting in a classroom at a computer is logged into a computer takes a self-assessment quiz provided by a commercial company. That quiz generates a little grade and the grade tells the eighth grader whether he or she can move on to the next module. The company has the grade. The grade's not an educational record because it's not a record maintained by the school for the educational privacy rights statute. So at that point, what happens to that information, it's held by the vendor because the vendor, the interaction between the student in the classroom is actually going to a third party vendor. So if you were using this software, maybe not you now,
0: but the future Professor Joel Ridenberg was was taking an at-home quiz, the company has no obligation to keep that information private based on this FERPA statute. That's correct.
1: Yeah, the the company at that point doesn't have the restrictions, the confidentiality restrictions, imposed by FERPA. Now, where it gets complicated uh, there's another second statute, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. It's a late 1990s statute and that statute requires parental consent if a website gathers information directly from children and the child is under 13. So if it's a middle, an elementary or middle school student and the information is being collected online directly from the student no. then the, the parent has to consent. The website can't do it without the parental consent. Under certain circumstances, the school district is allowed to act as the parent and give that consent. So if the activity takes place in the school, the school district might be able to consent to it. If it takes place at home, you need the parent involved. What Can you give an example of, of what
0: type of activities you're talking about?
1: What are good foods, the, the healthy foods to eat? And the child goes to a website in school and is looking at different healthy foods to eat the website could be collecting information about the foods that the child is looking at. It's the metadata simply from the interaction online.
0: Which could be the the way that they monetize their their software or a,
1: another stream of income sure. for them. Absolutely. Um, well, if it's collected directly from a child it, directly from a child. The website. The standard is, does the website know or have reason to know that they're collecting from a child? In that instance, the answer is absolutely they know they're collecting from a child. If it's done in the school and it's being done as part of a school program, the school can consent to it. That's the guideline we have from the Federal Trade Commission. The Federal Trade Commission is the regulatory agency that's responsible for the statute. But now, take the same website, the same kid, it's now happening from a cell phone on the school playground or it's happening at home. Now the school district isn't in the position to be able to give the consent. It has to be the parent. So the website has to get consent from the parent.
0: If The website requires consent
1: from the parent, what's then the privacy concern? Well, The the issue then becomes how much information is provided to the parent, does the parent really understand how the information is going to be gathered and used. Uh, In the research that my my center at Fordham conducted uh, during 2013, we found that by and large parents are not informed at all about these kinds of data collection activities very few uh, services that were, and functions that were being uh, performed in school using education technology programs, collecting information from children, even recognized that there was an issue under the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. So it was being essentially totally ignored. Uh, and I think th- th- there's a problem in that the industry, the EdTech industry, the vendors, I don't think really understand either what their obligations are when they exist, how it actually applies in the school context, and then how to satisfy it. It's it's a very new area right now, and the privacy aspects of the data collection really haven't been addressed as part of the core planning process.
0: Now there's been a lot of talk in America about how education is due for reform, and one of the big areas that's brought up is often technology. So, what you're discussing could be viewed by some as a way of
1: Of slowing the technological advance? If the privacy protection is not adequately addressed then there will be no successful use of data for driving educational policy decision-making. We've seen a number of instances where because of the privacy concerns uh, the data gathering programs have been completely shut down. Uh, So the the problem that it poses is if you don't build the privacy into the architecture of the educational technology uh, programs, uh, local communities will find it unacceptable to be engaging in massive data gathering and surveillance of children uh, without adequate privacy.
0: So for example when you were talking about these at-home quizzes, so hypothetically this at-home quiz could recognize that you know the child Joel Reidenberg, was a budding prodigy and then may target you for
1: academically gifted software or some summer camp might might offer that might offer as you say summer camp uh, they, they may be used to uh, to to advertise to the family for you know reading books. Uh, uh, may suggest to the family to watch Talks on Law. Um, just a whole host of various kinds of commercial advertising um, might be used to develop commercial products uh, for particular uh, children. So, I mean, that, that's one side of it. The, on the positive side of it, from an educator's point of view, if the data can be used to better target uh, an individualized learning program for each child, Right, that's a tremendous uh, advantage for education, if it can be successful, if they can do it. I think they need, they meaning the, the, the vendors, the schools, um, need to be paying very careful attention to who's getting the data, how is it being collected, how is it being used, and who's profiting from its use. And to the extent that anything other than a core educational function and addressing a particular child's learning needs, anything that goes beyond that, the school districts have to have conversations with their communities to determine what's acceptable and what's not to their public. You have many communities, for example, won't allow advertising on the scoreboard at the football field. Other communities it's perfectly fine. That's how they finance the sports teams. Those are community decisions. Likewise, communities have to be addressing does a school district take a service for which they pay no cash? We saw in our research 25 percent of the contracts that school districts had did not involve the exchange of money. So these were freemium services. That means the school district is paying with its children's privacy. The payment is going to happen. It's either through privacy or through cash. And that kind of decision seems to be made without any discussion with the policy implications within the community. And to put a, a, someone's advertising on a football scoreboard uh, has had a lot more discussion uh, in in public than selling kids' privacy from their personal information in the school district. And I think that's, that's changing now, and that's gonna have to change. The legal regime will need to, to change to keep up with this? Legal regime is gonna have to adapt to it. Uh, right now, our statutory protections don't cover this area. So, for example, school districts would contract out their information technology department. So all of the school's data would be hosted by some third party uh, online. Uh, Many of those contracts did not require the third parties to delete the data at the end of the term, which means it's sitting out there. Those contracts did not include prohibitions on redisclosure of that data. Um, So just basic protections. Um, I think it was something like 25% of those contracts did not require the hosting service to provide data security and they're not requiring any level of security. It's very rare to see a contract that says you need state-of-the-art or you need good security. It'll just in general if they address security it's you have to have data security period that's the extent of the obligation. So
0: those are some of the gaps regarding collecting data on students or data mining of students. Let's talk about some of the other technological privacy issues in the school. Uh, One issue that's gotten some publicity in the news relates to school's ability to review students' uh, devices whether it's their uh,
1: telephones or laptops. There are a lot of different facets to that. Schools also in in many states now have obligations uh, to prevent and stop bullying that's taking place in school Uh, or bullying that may be taking place outside of school but has an impact in the school environment and those obligations on schools have been increasing across the country. So kids that are using social media and doing things on social media that they really shouldn't ends up crossing into the school environment and school districts in many ways are, are caught between a rock and a hard place. They have obligations to act as policemen uh, for some of this activity but at the same time it's it can be very tricky depending on the age of a child. So if it's a, if it's a kid who's in middle school Um, the uh, paternalism that the school district has to exercise is greater than if it's a senior in high school. So what happens if it's a senior in high school who's 18 years old? Senior's an adult at that point, legally an adult. Uh, For the school district to to ask to see something on a device now implicates that student's First Amendment rights. So there's a very difficult line um, that, that schools are really in the middle of right now that varies depending on the age of the student, the kind of activity that's taking place, and we've seen a variety of uh, issues arise with sexting, for example, among middle school students that images are being shared, shared around. It's a very difficult problem. If a school teacher is aware of it, the school teacher has a legal obligation to report it. So how would a school teacher become aware of it? Kids using the phone... kids phone rings in class. school teacher confiscates the phone and lo and behold sees there right on the display is something that shouldn't be there. Uh, At that point, the teacher has knowledge, the teacher has an obligation to report it. If it wasn't on the screen, would the teacher then,
0: would the teacher be able to, say, search through the the camera of the phone?
1: Well, that gets, that, is a very tricky area because I think it'll, it will depend on the age of the student, the younger the student, the, depending on what the, just, what the rationale is for looking at the phone. Just confiscating a phone and looking through it is going to be very problematic.
0: So this mm-hmm. is what you were talking, touching on a little bit before, this sliding scale of uh, responsibility of the school uh, as the student gets older, it decreases, and also perhaps well, the, the increasing
1: rights. rights of the student. The, the increasing right. privacy rights of a student. The students' privacy rights increase as they get older. What, what, we, what we see from the various cases um, is, is as a student gets older, then we, we look at the First Amendment side in a much more serious way uh, as applying to the, to the student whereas a youngster younger kids you don't really um, see that uh, happening um, we just don't see that in, in the courts giving that kind of protection to younger students
0: so back to the case that you were mentioning if the if the teacher grabs or confiscates a, a cellular a mobile device are there certain rights or are there certain issues that the school should be thinking of when they're when they're Coaching their faculty on what they should be doing.
1: Sure, the schools really need to have programs, uh, teacher training programs, so that the teachers know you know what are the lines they can and can't cross, um, where the uh, devices. And now we're not just talking about phones now, because we, we see the you know tablets, the small tablets, where the devices are being brought into school by students and their student devices, the teachers have to be really careful. They need to have some justification. Why is it they're looking on the device? How old is the child? Is there something disruptive happening? Is there some other evidence that the child's uh, device has been used for wrongdoing uh, in the school? If it's a school-provided device, different set of parameters will apply to it. If it is a school-provided device, then the school has every right um, to be setting the rules for how it can be used, and monitoring that device to be sure that it's uh, being used only in accordance with those rules.
0: When you say school-provided device, are you talking about something like the computer lab or are schools actually schools issuing...
1: Schools are issuing iPads, uh, other forms of tablets um, to, to their students. Uh, some schools have laptop programs, there may be a loaner laptop. Uh, Laura Marion in Pennsylvania a couple of years ago uh, ran into this problem. They had a program where students Um, had school issued laptops for a class, for a particular class. They could do their work at school, they could take the laptop home, do the work at home. The laptop had a webcam on it. Unbeknownst to the students, the laptop had a monitoring program on the laptop that could remotely activate the webcam. And as it turns out, the tech department was doing that. So the tech department could, in a sense, spy on the students via the webcam. They could spy on the students via the webcam, and in fact, they did. And they got sued Uh, as a result of it. Um, it was a surreptitious monitoring, uh, the the webcams were used. These were, I don't recall, it was uh, high school, I think it was uh, ninth, eighth or ninth grade. So the kids were taking the laptops into the bathroom with them and uh, the tech department was activating them. At Which raises worlds. all kinds of legal privacy related issues. Absolutely. Now, having, say, geolocating information on the laptop. There, the, the at least the ostensible reason for this monitoring software on the laptop was for them to be able to recover them, to find out where these devices were. All right. It, it, it's plausible. It's, in this particular case, it's a little hard to believe that uh, given what the software was, how it was used, and how it really wouldn't help in recovering, locationally recovering a laptop if it were missing. But you could easily see that a GPS tracker in a laptop, where it's a school-owned laptop, could be an important uh, recovery tool for the school. On the other hand, that same technology means wherever the kid takes it can be tracked. And then you're tracking a kid's movements outside of school. And that, for the school to be involved in that type of monitoring of a child, uh, is very troubling. And in some instances may uh, cross a legal line. And may also raise
0: difficult issues with what, how that data needs to be stored. This could be very sensitive
1: information that could then be accessed. Who's storing it? Who's, who's gaining access to it? Schools it, aren't thinking about that. When they deploy the technologies and they're generating this, all of this data from those technologies, they haven't yet really focused on the privacy dimensions. And that's why, if we come back to the question you asked earlier, the educational, the, the data-driven educational policymaking uh, is one scandal away from being shut down every time and there will be scandals. The, the data, data from kids that, that's gathered in schools will be the subject of a data security breach. It's not a question of, of, when, of if, it's really a question of when. And what kind? And, and how big. Because if you think about every, almost every major financial institution in the United States has had a significant data security breach. The financial information of pretty much every adult American in the United States has been compromised. These are breaches happening to companies that are spending an extraordinary amount of money on data security because they're financial institutions. Their regulations require it. We don't have regulations requiring it for school data. So they're an easy target. So it's, it's an easy target. They're not spending the same level of money uh, securing the data that the financial institution have been doing for a long time. So it, it is inevitable that data will be breached from data sets containing school data. Now when that happens, if the schools have not proactively been addressing privacy, the first reaction of parents and legislative bodies will be to shut down the whole system. Go back to the chalkboard. They offer cost-effective programs for schools. They offer 24-7 access to kids. To learning tools. I mean, there are lots of advantages. There are lots of dangers. If we only worry about, if we only uh, focus on the advantages and think that, you know, this is the next best thing to slice bread, and we pay no attention to the dangers that are lurking on the privacy side, um, we know it's going to be a collision that will be explosive. You mentioned some of the devices that students are currently using
0: uh, mobile devices like laptops, tablets. Now, certain self-carriers are offering mobile watches. What do you see, what type of privacy concerns do you see being raised by next-generation technology like Google
1: Glass or portable cameras? Sure, so th- things that are, you know, wearable technologies that can film, can record, raise all sorts of dimensions for classroom, locker rooms in schools, uh, the bathrooms. Uh, you know. Uh, we're going to have to have some ground rules for what is acceptable conduct with these types of devices. Um, we typically don't allow recording in a classroom, as a general proposition, uh, and there are lots of reasons for that. It, it can have a, a chilling effect on students participating in discussion. Um, it, it can change the nature of the discussion. if. Uh, participants know that they're being recorded, it may, you know, there's just a whole host of reasons why. Um, so if we don't have some ground rules for that, uh, or if we do, we have to recognize what are we giving up and what are we gaining um, by allowing it. If it's a child who's bringing in um, the the technology that, that can, you know, monitor, record everything in class. Um, is that something that the school district really wants? It has an impact on the teachers. It has an impact on the intellectual property rights of what goes on in class. There's just there's so many dimensions of it uh, that we really need to start having it. If you were to ask me, I would say that, you know, unless a school district clearly authorizes it and has a good reason why they want to authorize it, I think we're going to evolve into an era where kind of the wearables and the recordables get checked at the, at the, at the classroom door. Um, because the alternative, there's almost no way to control it otherwise. And that has um, all sorts of dimensions. Uh, If we move, you know, the other alternative is we move to online, uh, more of an online education. Uh, and, and there, it's a whole different environment. There, you, know, you want the recording device. You want some capacity to be able to see multiple people on a screen all at once or to be wearing your, your glasses that have 3D holographic images with teachers and replay glasses. something you didn't understand, yeah. slow it down. So you, you could easily envision a virtual classroom that looks like uh, a traditional classroom or a non-traditional classroom where you have 20 or 30 people in the room. And they're all there virtually because you're looking at them through some sort of uh, uh, glasses. Um, so I mean, you can imagine all sorts of things where they would can develop new educational models based on it, uh, and that's taking it in one direction. And likewise, if you do that, you have to worry about the uh, protections, the privacy protections, the various rights of the participants. If you're talking about bringing uh, various technologies into a physical space. Again, the same kind of conversation will need to take place. You may come out in different places because you may have different concerns that would occur in a physical classroom, in a physical building, compared to a completely virtual school uh, setting.
0: It's time for a quick break. For those who are listening for MC Lee Credit in California, the code for this interview is 110515. Now back to the interview. Let's talk about some of the technological responsibilities that schools are taking on with new technologies. So a lot of times schools and even high schools or middle schools will offer, uh, whether it's a library or some type of study halls, space where students can work on their own at, at their own pace. Sometimes these uh, facilities will now be equipped with Wi-Fi or, or computer labs. What what responsibilities are schools taking uh, for these students, for their the activities that they're doing on the internet?
1: So schools have some responsibilities for filtering content um, on the internet that you know pornography and obscenity pornography essentially not be available on a school computer. Um, that's a concern that obviously the schools have. The, the devices, not from the school, be used to say make uh, social media postings, harassing other children um, in, in school. Th- those kinds of things. There's a th- there's a degree of policing that falls within the schools' bailiwick when they're making the technologies available to their students in, in the school building. Does this then require schools to track someone's Facebook account or look at someone's? Twitter, Instagram? Well, there, there are some, there there's some filtering obligations that are implied on, I, imposed on schools for web access, the kinds of websites that can be seen in school. And it, and it can be very challenging because, for example, various health websites um, may get wrongfully blocked because the filter programs essentially overblock. So a site on sexual health may get blocked because of terms used on the website We're an 11th grader, the legal right to be able to see that even from the school. Um, But aside from those sorts of special cases, the schools don't have a, I'm not aware of a requirement under some of the state statutes that the schools monitor social network sites uh, for bullying. On the other hand, if something is brought to the school's attention, in many states, the school now has an obligation to investigate it and to investigate what the source was, where it came from, which could involve uh, reviewing a student's uh, social media uh, postings and, and activity on a social media site.
0: If it was done at school, that you know, ostensibly they may have access, but if it was done, let's say it was done at home, does the student then have an obligation to turn over his or her Facebook password or, or Instagram password?
1: It probably won't be. It'd be very hard to compel a student to turn over the password. Uh, but the student could be compelled to turn over copies of the offending posts. Uh, more often than not, the investigation is going to get the offending posts from the victim or somebody associated with the victim, rather than from the perpetrator. But at that point, the the content for the investigation. If someone is complaining of bullying, they're going to have to demonstrate to the school what the basis for it is. And at that point, the school is going to get access to some of the content, and then uh, it'll open a disciplinary proceeding.
0: We've discussed so far mostly issues of privacy and technology in schools uh, at the high school level or below. Are there specific privacy and technology concerns at the university level?
1: The the concerns are very similar. Um, The main difference between a university setting and K-12 is in the university setting essentially every student is an adult. So the 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 individuals who are uh, implicated by the collection of data uh, those students, they're adults they can consent on on their own. Whereas in the K-12 environment uh, where it's children, they, we have a special sense of protection over children. The school is acting kind of in loco parentis in, in some ways for those children. Um, the rights, as they get a little closer to graduating from high school, the, the students may have, uh, will have greater First Amendment uh, expression rights. Once you're in college, then at that point, students are essentially all over 18 their First Amendment right; all of their uh, rights are fully applicable to them. So, that said, uh, the privacy concerns are the same. Right? Information is being gathered about them in the context of uh, their school activities. Um, the federal statute is the same statute that applies K-12 through as it does to universities because it applies to any institution receiving federal education dollars. So the confidentiality of the school records are protected, but all of these other areas. So many universities now uh, are using Gmail uh, for their students' email services. Uh, Universities don't pay with cash, they pay with privacy of their students. And this is a big issue for the universities. Um, The students' uh, emails, the content of those email messages can be under the privacy policy can be mined not to serve them commercial ads when they're using their university email, but when they now go and use other G- services, information gleaned from the university account can be used in the context of non-education related services.
0: So, a student at, say, a Cal school like Berkeley, um, if they're using a, if if Berkeley uses a Gmail account for their university, Which they do. Berkeley
1: does. Berkeley students are on Gmail.
0: So, if If you're a Berkeley student and you're essentially required to use your uh, Berkeley issued email account, Google by default is collecting a lot of information about you. That's correct. Today we've spoken at length about how privacy rights and student information collide. How do you see this changing in the future with new technologies or with a new landscape protecting the suits.
1: So I think the, the development of educational technologies will really compound the situation today. The, the trend in the technology is to make it smaller, ubiquitous, and data intensive. That trend is, needs to be matched with a parsing out of usage rights to the information and I think that in going forward in the future a couple of things are going to have to happen. I think we're going to have to see some legislative reform. We'll need to see some kind of basic uh, privacy protections adopted that will protect students' information when it's gathered from these ubiquitous uh, educational technologies. So I think on the two fronts going forward, it's legislation, we're going to need to see some legislative reform that covers this kind of data generated uh, by and from students uh, to protect it. And I think we're going to see the technologies and the industry moving to build privacy tools in the products that they're selling. For
0: more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksonLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksonLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California
1: MCLE podcast.